Hey, welcome to the Disruptive Innovation Podcast bonus episode. We had so much to talk about week one, we've made this special episode just for you. Uh, so, Mike, we've touched on a number of different topics, uh, and uh, we've talked about innovation, we've painted the picture for our listeners about what disruptive innovation actually translates into. Uh, let's take a look at what I would say, let's, let's pull out our crystal ball and look into the future and do some future wa- watching and really just talk about um, where you think uh, some of the next big trends are going to come from and uh, what you think that our viewers should be paying attention to as they, they're looking at news stories. Give us a sense of what, what are the things that people should be, should be listening out for. All right. So there's no question that these industry four technologies are going to have the most profound impact uh, that we've ever seen in our lifetimes, and both in our professional lives and our personal lives, right? So let me just outline a few of those at a high level, then we can dig in on some. Uh, of are the, these like the Apple, you know, the next, the next uh, Apple experience kind of thing? Well, they're they're certainly going to allow for very different experiences, right? The way that we work will be very different, right? AI will play a huge role in that. Fantastic. Right? The way we commute will be very different, and of course, autonomous vehicles are going to play a very, very different role in that. Excellent. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. So you know, let's let's start with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence research really began in the 1950s. And the promise of AI has always been, you know, overhyped mm-hmm. in the media. And even as, as recently as five years ago, a tremendous amount of overpromising and underdelivering. But there is no question that it is here today and organizations that are employing AI, and I'll talk about some of the various applications of it, mm-hmm. Um, are creating incredible um, leaps of advantage over their competition. The second area, of course, is the automotive industry, right? And if you saw yesterday, you know, Mercedes-Benz reported its first decline in quarterly profit in a very long time. Even the great German auto manufacturers are now really about to be significantly disrupted by what is happening by, you know, a a new generation of of automotive companies. Mm -hmm. So the entire mobility experience is, is changing dramatically. I think the third piece is the way that we take care of our own health. Right. Um, the, and right here in Boston, there's an emerging cluster of healthcare startups. Mm-hmm. And they're collectively called digital therapeutics. Interesting. And a digital therapeutic is essentially a mobile app that is designed to use IoT sensors collect data from your body, synthesize it, and continuously communicate with your healthcare profession. And at the same time, if there's an intervention required, your healthcare professional can you know, actually call you and guide you through something. So a digital therapeutic is the first time an application is actually sent through FDA approval. And so these applications are prescribed by your medical doctor. Interesting. And so one of them um, is is an app that, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about, right? We have this epidemic of hypertension right. and, and diabetes. And a lot of the testimonials indicate that people that have struggled with diabetes for years haven't had the discipline to manage their diet properly, to get proper exercise. And we're always sort of right on the edge so that these apps have made a profound difference in their ability to treat their disease. So, you know, so AI, a very overused, poorly understood term, 
And for people who I would deem to be either Luddites or enemies of the future, right, look at AI in the most dystopian way. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you right right off the bat. So I was thinking when you were talking about the diagnostics, real time, you know, you're getting information, you know, there's a feedback loop there. Obviously, many people would worry about the doctors getting that information, right? I can immediately hear everybody that I know, at least a few friends saying, whoa, that, that sounds very invasive. Um, although, you know, we've, we've got the Apple Watch and we've heard stories of people, you know, being saved and heart attacks and that kind of stuff. So there's definitely the, the positive side to all this in terms of where we're going. But what I also hear is that in many ways, it's going there anyway. <laughs> so there's a natural pro, pro, you know, pro, progression towards uh, these types of things. So as you, as you talk about those, those companies that are playing within the health tech space and disrupting that space, um, are, are, are these same companies uh, working with, if they're working with the FDA and, and you know, getting around the privacy issues and the PI, what, what, what's happening in, in terms of that to keep up with the technology itself? Because obviously if, you can't, if the technology is there but the policy doesn't support it or there isn't enough uh, working with, with consumers to make sure that everybody's comfortable with that, you know, some of the adoption of some of these things might be harder than, than, uh, than it potentially could, you know, should be. No, you, you raise a very interesting point, and there's so many things to unpack as well in that, right? I mean, on the one hand, the backlash, right? Facebook just agreed this week to a $5 billion fine, a record fine, because they've been playing footsie with, you know, data privacy for, for seven or eight years. Right. There's a great article in the most recent issue of Harvard Business Review called mm-hmm. The Age of the Continuously Connected Customer. And, you know, it's an article that I actually assigned to my students in a course I taught recently called The Future of Advertising and Marketing. Mm -hmm. And there's a variety of different sort of business models. And and a lot of it is dependent on how much comfort the user, the consumer has with sharing data. Mm -hmm. So if you're suffering from diabetes or some other, you know, very, very chronic disease, you're probably more likely. Right. To share data because the benefits that accrue Far are, are valuable, yep. right? It's not yep. someone who's going to spam you, right? So there's no question that it, it does come down to a level of trust. And so there's a continuum where I share no data to I share pretty much all of my most important data, but with very trusted intermediaries. Um, and of course, HIPAA and all those other things apply as well. Yep. So, but I'll, let, let's step back a second and go to sort of the, the overarching question, right? There was a great book written that was a a sort of a primer for public policy for the last wave of presidential candidates that actually cared about such things. Not the (laughs) not the current president, but the people on the the Democratic side that were running, because we are living in an increasingly technology enabled economy, right? Correct. And it was called The Future and Its Enemies. Nobody wants to be an enemy of the future. It is a losing strategy. It is an unwinnable battle. So on multiple levels, right? Now that industry four is here, you know, people have to decide, are they going to embrace technology or are they going to do everything they can to, you know, give it a stiff arm, right? To push it far away. And I know that Hollywood has had a profound influence right. on the way that a lot of people perceive AI, right? Yep. They have the, the, the worst case scenario, dystopian view, the Terminator view, right? Yep. And there's no question that technology can be applied in very nefarious ways, right? And we're seeing the advent of these deep fakes now that are becoming more and more prominent. But technology can be applied for incredibly positive purposes, right? And again, from the the backbreaking days of, you know, moving a plow behind a mule in the fields, 
and how mechanical power would allow you to be that much more productive or the way that we're able to move into a mass market economy, AI can really augment human intelligence, right? There's a, there's a phrase in the medical industry that very few medical professionals work at the top of their license. Mm-hmm. So as an example, maybe nurses are doing way more menial, menial work than their training would allow. What AI does is it allows professionals to work at the top of their license. It removes a lot of the menial, redundant, and, and in general, not very fun tasks. And it allows us to focus on the most relevant, most critical, strategic things. So, for example, in the world of sales and marketing, which is one of the, you know, the pioneering, um, you know, functions that's seeing a lot of benefit technology today and from AI and from machine learning. Yep. Um, there's a number of different companies that I'm familiar with. One is a company called Cogito or Cogito. It's right here in Boston. It's a MIT Media Lab's been out. Mm-hmm where they're working with the call center reps from Humana Health, one of the largest healthcare, uh, you know, uh, organizers in the, in the United States. And in real time, they're able to analyze the voices of both the call center professional and the patient or plan member and give very quick emotional intelligence cues to the call center professional to allow them to deliver a more empathic, more satisfying experience, right? And, and it's literally real-time guidance of how you communicate with somebody. Which, and, and, and a call center job, which can be very draining and very demanding and, and probably at times very, very boring. Significant improvements in net promoter score, in member satisfaction, and in employee morale and in attrition, because these are notoriously high attrition jobs. Right. Okay. Right. There's another organization that I actually had a, the privilege of working with in my startup, a company called Conversica, mm-hmm. where we use artificial intelligence as a way to help us get meetings with our best prospects, right? IT professionals have big targets on their back, right? Mm-hmm. They've got budgets and everybody is gunning for these. And so they've had to build these fortresses around their, their, you know, their offices so they could actually get productive work done. Well, I ran an experiment where we had our inside sales team trying to get meetings with these prospects who were by far the most um, well-qualified prospects that we had. They'd come through very high-level sources like really, you know, high-end webinars and Mm -hmm. the like. And my inside sales team struggled terribly to get meetings. And using Conversica, right, Conversica actually was able to crawl the web and, and create emails in the right tone, in the right, you know, with the right sort of mindset that were incredibly effective and getting to that prospect, the, the rate of getting a meeting was like in two emails, we'd get meetings. It's a better conversion rate there. That's conversion great. rate was infinitely better, right? Yeah. And, and it was almost an unfair fight. Hmm. And then there's another company called Gong. And what Gong does is it records your, uh, the, the inside sales discussions with prospects. And it's able to analyze the voices of every single inside salesperson you have and then create, a, you know, what are the most powerful messages that are being delivered, right? What are the top 10% of the sales team saying? How right. are they saying it? What's the bottom 10% saying? 
and then allowing the bottom 10% to, to kind learn of, from that. to level up. Hmm. Right. So in all of these instances, right, you know, we're not talking about AI replacing the job of a call center professional, a marketing professional, sales professional. We're talking about them being way more effective at something that they already have to do, right? Giving them higher employee satisfaction, you know, the sales and the marketing people probably getting, you know, a higher level of commission or bonus because they're being more effective. Right. So these kinds of things are changing work. And if we go in open-minded and say, this is my friend, this is a, just another tool in my toolbox. Right. The way a calculator was at one point, then maybe there's a different relationship with some of this technology and it's not quite so fear-inducing. Right. No, I agree with that. I, it's, it's interesting. So at MavenWave, we work with a lot of customers um, and one of what tends to happen is we will walk into an organization that, for example, the call center, uh, the, the call center example you gave was a, was a really um, uh, relevant one. And I've seen that um, in action where we will parse through call center records to do sentiment analysis. So it's not only about trying to figure out uh, whether or not the answer was right, but also what was the tone of the call? What was the sentiment of it? And then they get, that gets used into training. And it also gets used to develop training materials because we look at repeat patterns. Uh, and that's all leveraging uh, you know, ML and AI. Uh, so I think, you know, when I, when I look at companies like Google, for example, who we work with very closely, uh, they, they are um, probably, in it, particularly within the healthcare space, you know, moving light years ahead, light years fast in terms of helping companies with solutions. We need to take a break, so we'll be right back. This week's topics are brought to you by Rutgers University and its leading disruptive innovation certificate program. At Rutgers, we bring together industry thought leaders and top academic faculty to help you develop your understanding of a range of topics and skills to proficiently navigate the turbulent environment and emerge with a competitive advantage. For more information and to enroll in the Leading Disruptive Innovation Program, visit li.rutgers.edu. So we, you talked about AI, and obviously I just mentioned Google. We talked about um, IBM before. Um, when you're looking at and seeing the trends that are happening, are there any particular technologies that are being used? Um, and is it the big companies, or are these small companies that you mentioned, like the gongs of the world, are they building stuff from scratch, or is everybody really taking advantage of the, I think they're the open innovation or the open APIs that exist that are out there, the open source movement. What are you seeing from that perspective in terms of really helping to accelerate what, you know, the, the adaptation and rather the adoption of uh, these new technologies and trends? Yeah. I mean, let me, let me try to answer that uh, from a couple of different vantage points, yep. right? So there's no question that artificial intelligence requires well-trained data scientists. Mm-hmm and they are in very short supply, right? We have a huge um, gap in terms of cybersecurity professionals, you know, people that can write code mm -hmm. and certainly data scientists. So I was at a, a venture capital summit in Silicon Valley around AI back in the fall. And there was an anecdote that really stuck with me. If you wanna hire a world-class data scientist, prepare to pay them the equivalent of a salary of a second string NFL quarterback. Hmm. Okay, they're that expensive. Wow. Right. And so not surprisingly, the Googles and the Facebooks, you know, have the cash to pay them whatever they and they're they're earning insane amounts of money. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and they're being, you know, poached every chance that that they can be. So it has created a dearth of talent in the startup community. And so this has been a real struggle right, for, for startups. Now, it's not to say that AI startups haven't been funded in the healthcare space alone. I just looked at a map from CB Insights. Right. Mm -hmm. 110 startups using AI to disrupt 
the healthcare industry. So there are thousands of AI startups. Um, I sat at an M&A summit recently when the guy that's responsible for AI M&A at Amazon got up and, and complained, you know, I've been coming to the summit for several years. You know, when is there going to be a single startup that's going to scale beyond $10 million? Because anything less than that is just not interesting to Amazon. Interesting. So I think what you have is you have an incredibly crowded, you know, heavily funded startup space. A lot of companies are looking for that first real rocket ship experience. But I'm starting to see that, right? So there's a company called Next Insurance operating out of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. They're using machine learning and algorithms to serve small businesses that have been terribly underserved, right? Many, many sole proprietorships do not have any kind of business insurance, which puts them at incredible risk. right? And therefore, right, the owners are, are personally liable typically. So they're growing hand over fist right now. So I think Cogito is growing very, very rapidly. Gong Energy is growing rapidly. So I think we're just finally starting to see some of these startups hitting their stride over the last 12 to 18 months. But we're still in very, very early days. And to your point, right, I've, I've been fascinated by what Google's DeepMind yeah. business has done and what they've done with their healthcare part of their mm -hmm, business, some mm -hmm. incredible um, advances in, in the ability to provide virtual nursing assistance and the detection of retinal, you know, diabetic retinopathy yep. in the eyes and just, it goes on and on. So, and, and now Amazon is democratizing AI. So if you go to Amazon cloud services, they mm -hmm. have products like Amazon SageMaker, which is essentially this turnkey machine learning black box. Interesting. And, you know, you don't have to have a PhD in, you know, data science. You can, you can work with some of the inputs and the outputs and wind up doing some very, very interesting machine learning algorithms just out of, you know, just out of using an Amazon cloud prepackaged app. So I think we're going to see a lot more startups. I think the next wave of unicorns, right? We're seeing the, the, the last wave of unicorn was a lot of the platform economy companies like Uber and Airbnb yep. that, you know, that have been at it for a long time. I think the next wave will be a lot of these AI and machine learning companies that will be coming to the fore. And so you think that the, you know, from the VC standpoint, right, um, is this, from your perspective, this is one of the markets and this is one of the targets for them where they're paying a lot of attention? There's no question. I, I think, you know, we've seen the the rise and fall of virtual reality i think there was a there was a huge head fake right mm -hmm. obviously zuckerberg paid two billion dollars for oculus, oculus and, yeah, yeah. and no one's really developed the killer app yet for vr right we've seen a lot you know the blockchain and cryptocurrency i think there's been a lot of money that's been poured in we've seen incredibly um volatile you know cryptocurrency mm -hmm. uh, evaluations so you see a lot of the VCs bowing out but ai seems to be something that they're staying the course i think you know there's enough validation Right. That AI is solving real problems today that we've passed that overhyped point. Point. So yes, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's uh, fascinating. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago about Waymo uh, and how, you know, for them, they're, it's almost like they're past the stage of really testing that the road tests have been so successful. They're rolling that, you know, those fleets out uh, into obviously in states where in cities where the uh, they are welcome, right? Yeah. Not, not, not all cities make sense for that immediately, but yeah. it's amazing that we're at the point now where that is uh, a reality. It is. I mean, Waymo is a great example and, and I find them fascinating. So, you know, it, what a lot of people may not know is when Wall Street attributes value to the alphabet companies, mm -hmm. about a third of alphabet, 
Alphabet being the parent of Google. Yes. Roughly a third of Alphabet is now based on Waymo. Hmm. So just imagine, right? Waymo is still in basically pilot mode. Right. And the potential, I just saw a number today um, in one of my newsletters, Goldman Sachs is estimating the autonomous vehicle market to be $100 billion, you know, before uh, like 2027, 2028. Waymo, as you said, they are the hands-down leader. Yeah. And, and to a question that you asked earlier about laboratories, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Waymo has done 10 billion simulated miles, 10 billion with wow. a B, and then an extra 10 million road miles. Wow. And so you want to talk about, you know, validation. So there's no question that they are way far ahead of the market. And although GM, you know, spent a billion dollars on cruise automation in right. 2016, I think cruise has in many ways suffocated under, you know, the old school Detroit leadership. And, and you know, cruise just last week reported yet another delay. So they're very far behind. Yeah. And, and that whole space is really fascinating. And I, I think it's, it's one of those probably that we can pull out for a segment at a future date. But yeah. I look at, um, you know, uh, the, the new trucks that uh, Tesla wants to roll out. Um, I look at, actually, it's interesting you talk about Waymo. I remember when um, Udacity, which is, uh, you know, really free education platform. I mean, now some of the classes are paid for, but one of the things they had, which was sponsored, was a self-driving car, right? So you could take an entire course, I think it was six weeks or something like that, uh, just to understand uh, how ML gets applied to models around, you know, self-driving cars. Uh, and these nano degree programs, which are fascinating to me just in terms of thinking about the future of the workforce, that there's so many, you know, edX is another one, right? There, there are these universities, there's historical universities and also newer companies that are coming out that are saying, let's let's rethink how we teach you to learn and this continuous education process really to, to feed uh, this this gap that you were talking about with not having enough data scientists or people who understand ML and AI. So let's do smaller, you know, bites bite-sized uh, chunks of information, get you up and running, and then continue to expose you to things uh, as opposed to that whole historical take two years to do an MBA, right? Um, or whatever degree it is to get to the point where you're ready to rock. Uh, so I think it's fascinating when I, when I you know, the, the companies that we talked about, like I said, Tesla and what they're doing there and, you know, where uh, something like autopilot comes in and, and how it's probably one of the most popular features in their cars. So it, it sounds like the, the, the automated space is one big, uh, you know, avenue or, or, or future potential for, for AI. You talked about healthcare a little bit. Where else are you seeing AI in particular, since we're on this AI thread, uh, really push the boundaries and begin to do things that really, you know, accelerate um, uh, where we are today? I think insurance tech and fintech, mm -hmm. uh, you know, two things that are very accessible to us as consumers. Um, there's a whole new wave of insurance tech companies that are using AI and machine learning in a way that, you know, creates this direct to consumer market. So mm -hmm. if you think about how most of us have bought insurance, almost inevitably through brokers, right? And all brokers basically do is they're able to give you quotes on a variety of different lines that they carry. They don't really add a lot of value, but they add a lot of cost. Yes. Okay. Because, they, because they're intermediaries and, and clearly they got to get their commission. So the next wave and next insurance I referred to earlier, and you know, Lemonade is a company that Lemonade, I think we yeah. both know, and they're Metro yeah. Mile, which is another company mm -hmm. that only charges you by the mile, which in, in the new economy with millennials living in the cities yep. and you know, taking Uber everywhere, um, 
This is a group of companies that is taking a page out of the direct-to-consumer playbook, right, that was pioneered by people like Dollar Shave Club and Warby Parker. And so they're able to deliver an incredibly high-quality product. Um, And because of the use of AI, they take a lot of cost out of the equation. They're able to deliver a far more targeted product. So, for example, Next Insurance, right, one, they, they also go after micro-businesses and solopreneurs. So mm-hmm. one of, one of their uh, personas that they target are um, personal trainers. And there's really never been uh, an affordable business insurance product for personal trainers. And we know that they, they number the hundreds of thousands in the gig economy, right? Yep. It's a very popular gig for people to have. Another one are general contractors, right? The, the people that drive around yep. in the pickup trucks and the vans in your neighborhood and fix stuff. Yep. Most of them have gone uninsured because they just couldn't find affordable insurance. Next has been able to use, you know, massive sets of big data Mm -hmm. to understand where these gaps are and to create actuarially, you know, feasible kinds of insurance that are finely tailored to the needs of these personas at a fraction of what they might pay, where they'd go off and buy from a much larger commercial lines broker, right, and get far more insurance than they need. So it's, you know, delivering the right product at a very affordable price. And, and you know, you, you literally within 10 minutes, instead of spending a week or two, which was typical to go right. through the process, Trying to find the right one, you yeah. get the right one in 10 minutes. That's great. So, so insurance tech is huge. And then I think, you know, whether it be robo advisors uh-huh. or other kinds of, you know, augmented intelligence, right, that is taking a huge amount of these unnecessary transaction costs and advisory costs out of managing your portfolio. Yep, yep. We're living in an era where there's almost zero interest, you know, on anything that we put in a bank or a CD. So the ability to not, you know, waste anything on transaction fees um, is, is, is really important, right? And to encourage yeah. people to save their money. Yeah. And, and actually, you think, I think that there's so many companies that are in that fintech space that are thinking, or that, are, that, are, that are using data, like you said, to, to, to rethink how they monetize. So SoFi, for example, is an interesting company. I mean, obviously stories about mismanagement and, and, and or, or, or uh, the model not necessarily being right. Um, but it's interesting to see that company and those types of products being rolled out and, and gaining the kind of adoption that makes sense because you know, why, why do I need to pay fees? You know, that, that punitive process that you were talking about before doesn't really drive an affinity towards those institutions that are big and, and historically have held onto, uh, you know, um, the, the, the user base. So I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Uh, you bet. And let me give you one more example of another industry. And Nakiso, if I remember, you were there, perhaps you were there for the Aero Farms presentation that was on my last day of class. But let me, let me mm-hmm, describe mm-hmm. this. So Aero Farms is a company based in, of all places, Newark, New Jersey. Okay. <laughs> Good and old yes, Newark. And they are a farming company. They are a vertical farming company. They're famous. They are founded by an incredibly intelligent um, gentleman by the name of David Rosenberg. Mm -hmm. And what Aero Farms has now been able to prove at scale is through the use of data science and artificial intelligence and machine learning, they're able to grow world-class produce. And they're now growing 400 different forms of produce in the inner cities using data science, and they're able to run all of these experiments so that they optimize the produce for color and for taste Mm -hmm. and for consistency. 
where we've all gotten used to these very flavorless tomatoes and these very flavorless, you know, uh, pieces of basil because soil has been no, depleted. The soils, yeah, completely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've, they've, you know, they've brought in some of the, the, the nation's leading chefs to talk about how different this produce is, right? So they're able to do this at scale. And, and for the listeners out there, go out and look at Aero Farms uh, video on YouTube mm-hmm. to see what I'm talking about. But they're, they're able to deliver really fresh, healthy vegetables um, in inner cities and urban areas that have been food deserts. Um, you know, at, you know, in a fraction of the time, at a fraction of the cost, without a lot of the, you know, the bacteria and the other things that come from moving these products through the, the cold chain. Yeah, that, that's an interesting example because it, it speaks to something that I, I know that uh, this years ago, uh, it was an executive, I think, at Philip Morris. I want to say it was Philip Morris. Uh, he was doing these parking lot, uh, you know, urban farms, right? So finding abandoned parking lots in inner cities and uh, setting up what, you know, was the equivalent of hydroponic farms, like just on a parking lot uh, to to address this uh the gap of not having fresh fruit and vegetables and things like that. So it, it seems like there, um, and, and, and where I'm really going with this is, it seems that there are things that have happened in the past where people have seen the model, but now with the advent of data and access to all these models to run much, much better simulations or to run much better analysis of the models that uh, we're accelerating the rate of some of these uh, products, new products coming to light. Is that, is that a fair statement? That's absolutely correct, right? So I, I'm very familiar again with the pocket farms yep. and, 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 you know, they were difficult because getting, you know, having people who were volunteers to come out and tend to those yep. and, and having access to water and the weather. And so a wonderful spark of an idea that is now, you know, going to a whole different level right, right, because right. of the science and the things applied around it. Absolutely. Fantastic. So we just talked about AI uh, and we talked about it applied across a number of different spaces. And I think, uh, you know, we'll, we'll leave some of the information in, in the notes for this, uh, for the episode. Um, so the show notes will have all the links that uh, Mike and I have referenced. To, but um, talk to me about some of the other ones. So we, we, we began with, with AI. Um, what, what are the other ones that, um, that you think we should talk about next? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, VR is something that I struggle with because there has been such a hype curve. Mm-hmm. But I think we start are finally starting to see the the application of virtual reality in ways that are interesting. Um, now, a lot of them are being used in more um, entertainment oriented mm-hmm. types of aspects, right? So, um, so let's talk about a platform like Twitch, yep. for example. Yep. Okay, Amazon made a brilliant acquisition of Twitch maybe three or four years ago. Paid a billion dollars for this. Mm-hmm. Probably going probably to go down in history as one of the, the brightest acquisitions, you know, in in recent history. And there was a um, a concert that Twitch held. Um, and I'm not a big EDM guy, given mm-hmm. my generation, but of course <laughs> it's a it's a huge market. And so there's a DJ named Marshmallow. Uh-huh. Okay. And they ran a concert uh, on Twitch. They had 11 million people show up concurrently. Inside for, of VR. Inside of VR. Wow. For this concert. Okay? Incredible. 11 million. Now, you know, you and I would go to a Hollywood Bowl concert, 100,000 people, yep. and that's a big concert. Yep. So just imagine 11 million people grooving on marshmallow right that's astounding when you think about the technology you know the technology behind it uh but it also says something about where we are right um just how quickly 
uh, our, our phones, right? And just how powerful they are if you're using a phone for VR, or even if you're using, uh, you know, Oculus or whatever it is. I think that's what that's what's most most interesting to me is that the, the technology itself is accelerating so fast that sometimes uh, it, things don't necessarily happen because there isn't enough of an application. Uh, most recently, I was lo- looking. Um, I have one of the um, Samsung uh, VR ones, um, which I got at a conference somewhere, and I hadn't logged in for a very long time because I'm not spending a lot of time in VR. And most recently, I looked, and the the number of um, whether they're movies or games or. Fe- that content uh, has just grown, and so there seems to be a lot of investment happening in those in those spaces. Um, and you mentioned Netflix earlier, and just the, what's happening there in terms of the amount of uh, Netflix went from being just a, a a media provider to now they are creating content and challenging on a humongous scale what some of the incumbents are doing. The Disney's of the world now are uh, in many ways, uh, or the ABCs or whatever it was, you know, the parent company Disney. They're all challenged by Netflix, who you know. For all intents and purposes, really shouldn't necessarily be creating content, right? Uh, and yet they've got you know some incredibly successful series that um, have blown those other um, incumbents uh, you know away. Yeah, I mean th- this is a fascinating space. So it, it kind of comes full circle from the days of Blockbuster, right? Yep. And in the evolution of Netflix. Uh, under the leadership of Reed Hastings is is just stunning, mm-hmm. right? So first of all, let's give Reed Hastings some credit, right? He started Netflix in 2000 and, uh, 1997, mm-hmm. and he called the company Netflix, right? Which is a wonderful brand because it's internet. Yep. Now, in 1997, you and I are old enough to remember the state of the internet in 1997. 128K baud was <laughs> a state of the art. Yes. And if we tried downloading a movie in 1997 at that, using that technology, it'd still be buffering today. That's we'd still, correct. We'd still be waiting, right? But Reed Hastings had no choice, right? What happened was he became such a successful channel that all of the great content creators, whether they be the Disneys or the HBOs or the Warner Brothers, looked at each other and said, you know, this guy has no content. He can't run his channel. And they all looked at one and said, we're going to increase the price of our series by 10x. So what cost you, Mr. Hastings, 10 million last year is going to cost you 100 million this year. And obviously the, the business model would broke. Yep. So he had no choice but to start creating start his creating own. content. Now, the fact that he did it successfully <clears throat> mm-hmm. is beyond miraculous, right? And it's only because it was the right culture. It was a culture that was all about excellence. He gave his Hollywood division the autonomy to go figure it out. And they, boy, did they figure it out with an Academy Award for Roma. Yeah. But now we sit here today with Disney literally in the market, with Warner Media now in the market, right? And all right, Apple just sudden, announced their own series. Apple and their attempt they, to do, yeah, Apple's no. got a long way to go. Apple's yeah. way behind, but yeah. but there's no question that they're credible, right? And Comcast will come in, and yep. they're still Hulu. But this is a this is a arms race now, mm-hmm. and you just know that between Warner Media, Disney, and Netflix. You know, bringing things like VR and AR into the equation to deliver the better home viewing experience is just around the corner now, right? It's inevitable. Yeah. So they're gonna they're gonna do it, and you you may remember, but Chris Brennan, who is senior VP mm-hmm. of marketing from the NBA, yep. you know, gave a talk in my class, and you know what what and by the way, if people don't realize this, the NBA was rated by Fast Company as the third most innovative organization on the planet. Because again, they're applying a lot of the principles that we've been talking about. They're relentlessly willing to experiment. They have fearless, you know, mindset about experimenting. And they're using VR where you can literally 
picture yourself sitting courtside, right? Ne- you know, in the uh, the Staples Arena or Madison Square Garden or the Barclays Center, right? And your avatar is sitting there courtside watching LeBron <laughs> dunk. Yeah. And you actually have avatars next to you on your left and right, and you get to know them in that virtual space yeah. as you're all sitting there watching a basketball game together. Yeah. Okay. That is cool. Yeah. And, and I actually, that, that, wow, that's a, it, it makes me think of so many different things, but, but one in particular is, um, and you posted the other day about the Fortnite e-games, right? ESPN, um, uh, I think about, sorry, not ESPN, EA Sports, right? Think about how big that Madden franchise was and the NBA franchise was and the 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 shift. And, and now when you go buy a PlayStation and you play the game in VR, those modes of uh, entertainment are particularly extremely engaging. So you're right. I think that there's something that's happening uh, w- with with that particular space. And it's just a matter of of catching up to the cost and the, and the price being right. So HoloLens as a medium is fantastic, but just still outpriced, right? $1,000 yeah. a pair, not there yet. Oculus has just come down. Oculus goes like 200 bucks or something like that. The point is, I think that the direction of all of this entertainment uh, because people are so married to screens and, and because industries like the NBA want to give you a much richer, immersive experience, I think it's a matter of time. Oh, yeah. And it's fascinating. So you you raised a very interesting point. So let me not let this pass by. So, you know, I did a post on this this week. Um, when I was 16, you know, in my ge- in my generation, <laughs> yes. we mowed lawns, we shoveled snow, we we unloaded trucks, okay? This past week, the uh, there was the Fortnite World Cup. Yep. Now, for those of you out there in listening land that don't know Fortnite, um, you've been living under a rock, so let me lift the rock and expose some sunlight and encourage you to go out and get some vitamin D in your body. There's a company, and of all places, Cary, North Carolina, by no means considered to be an innovation cluster. The company was founded in the bedroom of the CEO and founders, president's parents' home. Hmm. Okay, and they've been at it for 30 years. So this is not a new company. But again, on the themes that we've been talking about, they had an internal innovation jam or hackathon, and the employees came up with the idea for Fortnite. So I, this, I didn't know that story, Mike. Yeah. So here we have the CEO being humble enough to have been interviewed on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and say, listen, I didn't create Fortnite. Hmm. I created the culture that allowed Fortnite to happen. So another servant leader yeah. who delegates innovation responsibility to his people. Yeah. Came up with what is the most successful game in history, 250 million monthly active users. Yeah. Phenomena, right? A black swan event on steroids. Mm -hmm. And this past weekend, they had their first ever Fortnite World Cup championship. $30 million purse. $30 million purse and a 16-year-old kid. Walked away with first prize and yeah. a $3 million check. That buys a lot of beer <laughs> and a lot of video games. A lot of Red Bull. A lot of Red Bull and a lot of virtual <laughs> stuff inside the game. But wow. I, so you're right, Nikki. So, I mean, we are we are standing on something that I don't think any of us can fully comprehend. Whether you've got Marshmallow drawing 11 million concurrent listeners to a, to a virtual concert. Mm-hmm. Or you've got a bunch of 16-year-old kids competing for $30 million in prize money over a weekend doing something they l- would do anyway? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that's that's sort of what's interesting about the um, some of these things. I remember when Pokemon Go hit, right, and that was running on Google Cloud, and they looked at the amount of usage and just how powerful Google's infrastructure needed to be to support that, right? Uh, and it wouldn't be possible without that 
real power, but it also wouldn't be possible if people weren't creating this content That's and right. weren't pushing the boundaries and weren't having these conversations where they decide, hey, we think we can go for it and swing for the fences. Yeah, and and, and Pokemon's a great example, right? Because I'll, I'll, I'll take you back on a little history trip, right? Um, mass adoption of technology. So when the radio was invented, mm-hmm. okay, when the radio started to be commercialized, it took almost 40 years for 50 million Americans, 40 years, wow. for 50 million Americans to have a radio in their home. It took Pokemon Go 13 days. Okay, so if we look at, you know, it goes back to the very beginning of our discussion about yep. why innovation. Because, you know, it, it took, it took you, know, um, you know, 26 years for the TV. Yeah. Right? It took, uh, you know, um, six or seven years for the iPhone. It took 13 years for, 13 days for Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go. So the reason I think it's important is because when we, when we do come up with a cultural hit, yeah. whether it be a Pokemon Go or a Fortnite, right, that planet scale infrastructure has to be there. And yeah. it is because what Google and, and Amazon and Facebook have created is just, you know, most people don't understand yeah. the miraculous engineering that allows this stuff to work at unprecedented scale. So if you do create something, you can get 50 million people to adopt your technology literally overnight. And that's one of the things that's driving the velocity of innovation and why companies are starting to finally get that they have to be on their on, you know, vigilant alert all the time. Okay, time's up. That's our segment for today. Join us next week as we bring you more on disruptive innovation. To find notes from the show, links to interesting articles, and to see what's coming next, follow us on social media, On Twitter, you can find us using the handle Disruptive Innovation Podcast or visit our blog at disruptiveinnovationpodcast.live. Until next week, from Nikiso and Mike, bye for now.